Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, September 24th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, MAAP testing results evidence a nosedive in math and English proficiency. Then restaurants in the state wrestle with an ongoing labor shortage. And an update on a legal battle to reinstate voting rights for some Mississippi felons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The State Department of Education released this year's MAAP testing results yesterday. They paint a grim picture. Only 35 percent of Mississippi students earned a proficient score on the mathematics portion of the exam. That's down almost 13 percentage points from 2019. About the same number of students demonstrated English language arts proficiency. That's a drop of about seven percentage points. Ronnie McGeehee is the executive director of the Mississippi Association of School Administrators. He speaks with Desiree Frazier. The overall picture from an academic performance, when you have such a change of environment that our educators and our students and our parents have gone through uh, in, in the last 20 months, you're going to see an educational learning loss. And it was predicted nationally, uh, and you see this trailing results about participation because obviously our opponent is this virus that knows no boundaries. And it it attacked so many places in so many different ways. And I'm so proud of the way educators shifted uh, on a dime to still try to make school as much as school is possible. What concerns you about the scores, if anything? Well, the the drop is always concerning. Uh, At the same time, uh, I think that we have a, a potential solution, and that is since it was predicted about the amount of drop, we've also provided funds through the recovery acts and the ESSER funds for some learning loss. And districts I know are being 
prescriptive about how uh, they target individual students and classrooms uh, to be able to close that gap back to where we were. Can you give us a perspective on what superintendents have been dealing with over the course of this pandemic and trying to keep students and staff safe and have learning continue? My description of that is is, is the referee uh, on a basketball court. When the referee blows that whistle, half the gym's happy, half the gym's mad. And so educational leaders for the last 20 months, uh, no matter which way they go, they know they're going to make somebody upset. And so they have to make the choice for what's the best for their community and, and their students and staff. And it's, it's really worn on our, our educational leaders. We've had several really good young superintendents that have basically said, I've had enough. And, and they were, let's just say, retirement eligible, and they chose to leave. But we also have had a number of young educators who basically picked up the rope, so to speak, and is holding on and serving their communities well. So it's, it's, it's a challenge for sure. It, it is a huge challenge because of the, all of the different information and disinformation, you know, that we've been exposed to over the last 20 months. Having students and staff under a sickness issue uh, is not necessarily different to us because of October and November flu seasons. We, but we deal with flu seasons in a very tightly round calendar where uh, this episode has been basically year-long, if that makes sense. And so the challenges of the decision-making where most of the time it's either a left or a right situation, it could be a, a left and then a 45 back over to another 90 degrees, just depending upon how the circumstances inside the building and inside the community exist. Have parents, some parents, made it more difficult to do their jobs? Well, certainly, but, but our parents also have been scared, uh, you know, and, and they were looking for leadership. They knew that a place of 180 days, 7, 7.30 in the morning and 3.30 in the afternoon for 180 days is constant. You know, schools traditionally are routine rituals. Bell rings, we, we move classes, uh, we go to restrooms, we wash a lot of hands, we do a lot of hygiene, we do a lot of reinforcement, and we do a lot of relationship building. And that's been turned upside down. That environment, we try to make that as normal as possible, but you never know about who is uh, in, infected and therefore who is impacted by all the guidelines uh, and that we receive from a quarantine standpoint. So uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the superintendents and principals and, and teachers for staying and hanging in there in the last 20 months and really doing a, a, an admirable job. What do you anticipate, if you can, moving forward? Because we don't know when we'll see this really shift to a point where people can stop wearing masks or feel they can stop wearing masks. And we're hearing experts say that COVID-19 will always be around. Well, I've, I've read and, and heard that information as well. And, and I would think that potentially uh, 
and eventually we would treat it uh, like a severe flu season. And we know how our options are that are out there. And we choose wisely about those options for each one of our areas of influence in our districts. We have from Minnesota County, uh, 42 or 43,000 students, and all the way down to, to some in less than a thousand. So each uh, one of our district leaders has very similar but yet very different situations that they deal with on a daily basis. How are they? do you think they'll attack the learning loss? A good bit of the learning loss it goes into a one-on-one or, or a smaller cohort size inside your room, and you may get three students who are very similar, a uh, quartile where uh, they need some action uh, within the, the spelling or, or the, the writing side of things, and they'll target what where they are. If they get to 30%, they want to get them to go to 40 other ones who may have dropped from an 80 percent uh, percentile rank to a 60 percent you know may not need as much time on task you know those in the 30 percent range so it, it would be prescriptive it would be targeted all right and and a good bit of this is, is time on task and how would you deal with whether students should be promoted to the next grade or not well, I, I think that is uh, goes back to credits still when you're looking at uh, the uh, secondary side because each one of our Carnegie credits uh, basically moves you on to the, to the next level. And, and even in the uh, middle school arena, subject content will move from one to the next. And then you follow them. Our counselors, our school counselors also pay a, a very big role in all of this because those are the ones that, that see and can identify the social emotional loss uh, that we've had because of potentially uh, a parent losing a job or, or, a, or a parent losing you know, uh, a mom or a dad to, to this virus. And so, you know, those guys are really in, in the middle of this as well. I, I think the learning loss will be with us. For, for probably 24 to 36 months. And, and we'll be looking at how to allocate resources and time and, and individuals, you know, to support our young people. Because at the end of the day, we want to try to get them to some kind of routine and, and exit them so they can have some choices post-secondary. Post well, Dr. Ronnie McGee, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and we're very appreciative of what you guys do at Mississippi Public Radio. Coming up, restaurants in the state wrestle with an ongoing labor shortage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's workforce participation rate has ticked up in recent months, but restaurants in the state say they're still struggling to retain staff. Stephen O'Neill is the owner of the Manship in Jackson. He speaks with Kobe Vance. It has been extremely difficult. Uh, We have, you know, we've been short-staffed both in the kitchen and in the front of house. I feel like a lot of workers have just left the industry altogether. Pay is extremely competitive. And I mean, we're well above the, you know, minimum wage threshold to all of our workers. And even with that competitive pay, it's still hard to find 
help. I was talking with Pat Fontaine with the Restaurant and Hospitality Association a moment ago. He said some businesses across the state were having to do other incentives, like whether it be sign-on bonuses or offering insurance of some kind. Have y'all had to look into any things like that? Yes, we have done sign-in bonuses at both of our restaurants. One of our restaurants, we already are able to offer health care due to the size of our company. The other restaurant's a little bit smaller, so we don't have health care options there. But health care bonuses for retention and for new hires, uh, completion of a probationary period, have all been customary in the last year. And how is this affecting your business in terms of the day-to-day operations? I mean, it makes it extremely difficult to maintain the high quality of service that we consider our standard. If people call out or decide not to show up for work that day, you know, it puts us behind and people see empty tables or different things happening and they're wondering, why why can't I sit there and we're on a wait? Well, that section's closed because that server didn't show up. Or we try to, you know, use those tables so that we don't have empty tables, but then we're spread thin and we can't give everybody the service that they, they deserve. It's a trickle down for sure. And the workers you do have that are coming in, how are they doing? They're doing well, but they're all tired because they're working extra shifts to cover for lack of staff and things like that. And so it just spreads your staff then when they're having to cover two to three extra shifts, you know, one or two extra shifts to three extra shifts a week just because we don't have a person to work those shifts. Are y'all reaching out uh, to try to uh, find new hires? Yes. I mean, we're using, we're trying to go through temp agencies, social media, online ads, just about every job site you can think of. Do you see an end in sight to this this shortage, or do you think this is going to be something that restaurants are going to continue to struggle with even after the pandemic? I think it's definitely going to be a long-term struggle. I don't know what the end in sight is. Uh, we're, we're all continuously still struggling. We all thought we would hopefully be through it by now, uh, but the fact that it's, it's still here uh, sets a precedent that this may be the new normal. Have you been talking with other small business owners uh, about about this issue? Yes, sir. Whenever in your talks, what have others that you've been talking with been doing to approach this issue? We're again, we're all uh, trying to be more competitive in our pay and starting wages are higher than they normally have been in our industry. The, you know, wage increases and bonuses are much more common now in shorter time frames of employment. Normally, we wouldn't even look at somebody for a raise within a year, and now we're giving them, you know, 90 and 120-day opportunities where we're letting them know up front we'll be considering you for a raise at this time. Have those helped? It has helped some. It's helped us retain more so than attract, I would say, but for every, you know, Every two we lose, we get one in, or vice versa, we'll lose, lose one and get two. And it's just, you think you're getting ahead and getting close, and then you, you lose one or two people. I believe that answers all the questions I had. Is there anything else that stands out to you about the situation that's going on right now and what you'd like to share with Mississippians? You know, there's just, there's jobs out there. There's jobs available. If there are people that are not working, it's because they choose not to work. Uh, I, I do not know of anyone in any industry that I do business with that isn't hiring right now. Stephen O'Neill is owner of The Manship. Uh, Stephen, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
Coming up, an update on a legal battle to reinstate voting rights for some Mississippi felons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals earlier this week heard arguments regarding a lawsuit over Mississippi's voting ban for people convicted of certain felonies. Rob McDuff is an attorney with the Mississippi Center for Justice, which brought the suit. He speaks with Kobe Vance. This is a federal court challenge to a list of crimes and categories of crimes that was adopted by the framers of the 1890 Constitution and that prescribed that anyone convicted of those particular crimes would be permanently barred from ever voting again. The problem is that those crimes were specifically chosen because they were believed to be disproportionately committed by black people, whereas other crimes that were believed to be disproportionately committed by white people were not selected. This was part of a larger effort by the framers of the 1890 Constitution to take the vote away from the black people who had attained it at the end of the Civil War when slavery was abolished. And for that reason, it's completely unconstitutional. And so we have filed this lawsuit to prevent further use of this particular list of disfranchising crimes and to nullify that portion of the provision of the 1890 Constitution. Now, when it comes to the crimes that are uh, involved in this I know there's a, a range of different felony crimes that do disqualify somebody from having um, their voting rights. What are y'all challenging specifically? We're specifically challenging the use of the list of eight crimes and categories of crimes that were adopted in 1890 and that are still in effect today. And we're saying that that particular list should not be used at all. Now, there were two other crimes that were added in 1968, murder and rape that we are not challenging, and if we prevail in this lawsuit, they will still remain as disfranchising crimes. What is the importance of having voting rights restored for these Mississippians who did get villainy charges? The primary importance of this case is that uh, if we succeed, it will nullify the last remaining vestige of the racist provisions from the 1890 Constitution that were designed to rob black people of the right to vote. They included the poll tax, which has since been held to be unconstitutional. They included literacy tests and understanding clause, which has since been held to be unconstitutional. But they also included this felon disfranchisement provision that is still in place. So it's very important for the state to rid itself of these racist vestiges of a racist constitution. Beyond that, people who have served their time and who have already paid for their crimes should not be prevented from voting again. And we think that that's what's happening in most places around the country. And this particular list of crimes, most of which are nonviolent, most of which don't make any sense as being on on an exclusive list of disfranchising crimes, should not be used to prevent people from voting. On the note of like uh, other places around the country, how unique is Mississippi in having these laws still on the book? Mississippi is unique in in the fact that it adopted a sort of laundry list 
of felon disfranchisement laws targeting specific crimes for racial reasons. Some of that was done in Alabama. The U.S. Supreme Court threw out that Alabama provision back in 1985, and it's time for this Mississippi provision to be thrown out as well. Beyond that, Mississippi is one of only a handful of states that still permanently bar people from voting if they are convicted of, of particular felony offenses. And so, uh, you know, the trend is very much toward toward allowing people to vote again after they have served their sentences. And Mississippi is is not following that trend. Uh, and because this particular law in Mississippi or this particular list is unconstitutional, it's it's time that it be discarded. What are y'all citing for showing that this is related to race as opposed to other factors? People in charge of the 1890 Constitution made it clear that the purpose of the Constitutional Convention was to take the vote away from black people. Moreover, just six years after the Constitutional Convention, the justices of the Mississippi Supreme Court said that this particular list of crimes and category, uh, categories of crimes were designed for that same purpose and were chosen because those crimes were believed to be committed disproportionately by black people. And as we look at it today, what, what are those trends continuing to be? Are we, are we still seeing that same disproportionate effect on African-Americans in the state? Yes, yes. These particular crimes have a disproportionate impact on black people. The state is approximately 35% black in voting age population, but 60% of the people convicted of these particular crimes are black. And so it really does. It, it really does make a difference in terms of who is allowed to register and who is allowed to vote. What role does restoring voting rights play in helping people reconnect with society after they get out of prison? I think it's particularly important. I think studies have shown that it's important. I think that you know, the, the testimony of people who were barred from voting because of convictions and later allowed to vote supports that. And I'll give you an example. One of one of our plaintiffs, Roy Harness, who was a military veteran, but who unfortunately became addicted to drugs in the 1980s and wrote a bad check and was convicted of one of these crimes and hasn't been allowed to vote. And this is a guy who had a, had a very distinguished career working for a number of a number of companies over the years and who, after he kicked drugs in the 80s, uh, subsequently went back to college, got his bachelor's degree in social work, and then his master's degree in social work at Jackson State, and is now uh, helping other addicts kick the habit. This is the kind of person who should be allowed to vote and who should be part of our society. And getting rid of the felon disfranchisement and allowing people who have served their sentences to vote does help reconnect them to society. Rob McDuff is with the Mississippi Center for Justice. Rob, thank you for talking with us today. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.